It'll also be on the screen. It'd be great to have your Bibles open if you've got one. Um, Matthew chapter 9, looking at verse 35 to 38, which says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. All right, well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jeremy. I'm a lead pastor here at City Light. Great to have you with us. If you're just tuning in for the first time, uh, or if you're a regular part of our church family. And just to double down on Jacob's encouragement from before, if you're looking for something to do during the week, these, the socials that we're doing on Thursday night, trying something new, have been so good. I loved Thursday night. I am a terrible, terrible cook. But honestly, the recipe was that easy that you couldn't mess it up. So mine looked a lot different to everyone else's, but it tasted great. That's the main thing. Um, but the other thing as well is that... Um, if you are, look, I realize we're heading into week five, six, 60 million. I don't know, we're in this weird time warp phase at the moment of lockdown. And if you are just starting to find it a real grind, I just want to encourage you that Jesus is with you through this. And I, I don't know if, if you feel it this way as well, but I often feel a bit like, in some ways, it's been so good in Australia, I almost feel bad about, you know, not coping or anything like that. You almost feel a bit like Jesus has his whole global church family and like we're like the the whingy youngest kid who like who just can't hack it or so he's got like the church in africa is resilient and joyful and south america and in iran and china they're struggling with government oppression and then he's got this one kid that just can't hack it and and we almost we almost view it like like he's the we look like the kid in the family that is the spoiled kid who can't handle it but just to say to you that that is not biblical and that's not how jesus views his church at all then in Ephesians 5, we're told that Jesus loves his church and died for her and nourishes her and builds her up. And, uh, and we're a part of that church. And not only that, but you individually are part of the church, that Jesus loves you. And so however you're feeling at the moment, Jesus is with you and working through you, and you're probably doing better than you think you are. And so I just want to encourage you to keep pressing on. It's great that we could be here to gather for these online meetings and just continue to meet with your brothers and sisters in Christ and to be encouraged. We need it at the moment. But we are, we're going to dive into this passage in Matthew, which, as Jacob said before, is an amazing passage, an amazing window into how Jesus views people and the very heart of Jesus. Because the truth is at the moment that the church is very much on the outside of a mainstream culture. We know that that's the case. There was a time in a Western society like ours where the majority worldview was somewhat Christian, if not mostly Christian or somewhat viewed, uh, based on the Bible, that the average person on the street, even if they didn't go to church, believed that if there was a God, it was probably the God of the Bible. And the culture has shifted massively in a relatively short amount of time, and it's fair to say that the church is a minority view in the culture. But many different churches have responded to this differently. And I think many churches have responded to being on the outside of culture the same way that kids in the playground, almost at high school, have responded to being outside the main group. There are some churches that kind of respond like the short kid with the temper. 
People have been friends with him before, but only so they could give him a wedgie. And now he's got this kind of adversarial kind of view towards anyone in the playground. And there are churches that are kind of like that with the culture. They got their head flushed one too many times. And so now they're like, they don't trust it. There's a sense of like, just stay away from the culture. Everything out there is bad. They're always trying to get you. Everything out there is laced with Satanism. Harry Potter, Satan, hip hop, Satan, Sesame Street. Probably Satan, not sure, better to stay away from it. Shawshank Redemption and Duck Dynasty, fine. Everything else, Satan. And they have this, this sense, this fear of the culture around them. Others kind of have gone the opposite extreme. They're like the kid that will do anything to fit in. They're like, honestly, anything you don't like about me, I'll change it. What's your favorite band? That's my favorite band. I was into that thing. If you're not into it, I'm not into it anymore. Look, any do- some churches are like this. Any doctrine you don't like, We'll change it. Hell, sex, anything about men and women, whatever you want, we'll change it. Just please like us. And sometimes churches respond in that, in that same way. Others respond like the studious kid who pretends that they don't even want to be cool. The kids who are like, parties are so dumb. And you know what's really cool is studying and getting into the degree you want. And there are churches that kind of respond to the culture like that. Like, we don't even want to be in. We'll just do our own thing We'll stick with the Bible, we'll do our thing, they do their thing, and we'll keep away from the culture. And that's their attitude towards the culture and to being on the outside of it. There are others who are like the kids who dobs on the other kids to try and get the teacher to like them. Churches that petition the government and say, you should legislate that the main culture should actually like us and respond to being on the outside in that way. As you can tell, all of these ways are not very endearing and ingratiating of the gospel. So what are churches to be like? What are we supposed to be like as followers of Jesus, as the church of Jesus? Well, the most obvious thing to say would be that the church should be like the head of the church, Jesus himself. And what was his attitude to the people around him? It wasn't fear. It wasn't anger. It wasn't trying to be liked. He had compassion. Jesus looked on the people around around him and had compassion on them. It says he looked on them as sheep without a shepherd and had compassion. And so I'm going to pray that as we open God's word, that by his spirit and his word, he would be transforming us to be like Jesus. That that is how we would view the culture around us and that we would have the heart of Christ to be more like him. So let's pray that he would do that work in us this morning, even as we gather separately in our lounge rooms and whatnot. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a compassionate God, that you see us as we are, stuck in sin and unable to help ourselves, and yet you had compassion on us and continue to have compassion on us, that you sent Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh to be condemned on our behalf so that we might be set free. And Father, we just pray that this reality of the gospel would transform us and change our hearts and renew us And give us a strength and a joy and a passion and a compassion for the people around us. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. We are in a section that's just on the other side of a a huge section of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew is written by Matthew, who we met last week, who was a tax collector, someone who was hated in his culture, met Jesus, had his life turned completely upside down, and then followed Jesus all the way through his life and ministry, and, in, and then now has, has written down a book containing the story of Jesus' birth, his, his life, his teaching, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. 
And we've just come out the other side of a long section of teaching. For about three chapters in the book of Matthew, nothing happens. The story kind of stops and we just sit and hear Jesus teach. And he lays out some of the most radical, world-changing teachings that have ever been laid out. He talks about topics, everything from revenge to retaliation to sex to keeping your word to money and generosity and poverty and prayer and fasting, all these things he covers. And at the end of that, people are just astonished by what he teaches and how authoritatively he teaches. But now the story kind of picks up again and we get a bit more action. We see a a section of narrative where Jesus will heal or have some interactions with people. Then there'll be a bit of teaching, then more action, then teaching. And that's kind of the, the section of Matthew that we're in. And in many ways, this would have been Matthew's experience of discipleship under Jesus. They went on these crazy missions and adventures, saw Jesus heal people and change lives, and then they'd sit down for some teaching. And so we're kind of getting like an experience of what what it was like to follow Jesus as we see a bit of action, then we sit down and hear Jesus teach and explain things. And in this section, Jesus has just performed some incredible miracles, has healed people, two blind men in particular, And now we hear him teach something. And look at what he says in Matthew 9. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And when he saw the crowds, what? I'm going to pause it there. Jesus is on mission. He's going from cities and villages. He's teaching in the synagogues. So every Saturday, Jewish people would gather for something called synagogue a place where they would hear the Bible, where it would be read and where they'd meet for fellowship. And in many ways, this is where we got the tradition of the Sunday gathering. As followers of Jesus, we do it on a Sunday and not a Saturday. But it was something that God's people started doing in exile when they were away from their homeland and they couldn't get to the temple. So to continue in discipleship and in following God, they would meet every Saturday to read God's Word and hear a teaching from it. And so Jesus has been going to all these cities and towns and he goes to the synagogues And he'll open the Bible and he'll teach people. But it says here, he's preaching the gospel. So Jesus has been going from town to town, healing people and preaching the gospel and demonstrating the power of God at work. So Jesus is putting in work here, going from city to city. And he sees a crowd of people following him. And what does he feel? It says when he saw the crowds, how do you imagine Jesus would feel? Would he feel harassed like the paparazzi are kind of after him again? He's like, I've just been to all these cities and towns. I'm teaching, I'm healing nonstop, and these crowds just won't stop following me. Does he feel tired looking at them? Does he feel weary and a little bit guilty? Does he feel a little bit chuffed like, oh yeah, I've got all these people following me? We don't have to guess what he was feeling. Matthew tells us, look at what it says, Matthew 9. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion. He's not angry. He's not afraid. He's not indifferent. He has compassion. And why? Because the people were harassed and helpless, it says, like sheep without a shepherd. If he saw them just as freeloaders looking to get something from him, he would have been angry with them. And some of them were. If he saw them as just potential informants who might dob him into the religious authorities, he would have been afraid of them. And some of them were this. If he saw them just as more people, which undoubtedly they were, he might have just felt indifferent. 
But instead, he looks at them and feels compassion because primarily they might be many things, but primarily they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He sees through everything else and he has compassion on them. It's a little bit like being a teacher at school. When you're at, when you're at high school and you are, you are in the mix, you, you, you might, as you were going through high school, be afraid of this guy or this girl because they're tough or they have influence or she's really mean or he's really whatever. But when you go into school as a teacher, you can sit above it all and just see what's really going on. You can see these tough kids and see that ultimately, really, in the end, they're just scared and even a little bit humiliated, and that's why they bully other kids. Or that kid is just insecure. That's why they pick on the other kids and make them feel so awful. When you're a teacher, I mean, you can sit back and see what's really going on, but when you're a kid in high school, all you can see is people who are potentially someone you could be scared of or influenced by or in with or outside of. And Jesus here is kind of like that. He sees above it all, And he sees that in the end, all of us are really just full of fear. We look impressive on the outside, like we're successful or we're tough or we're this or we're that. But all of us are dying, and when we really give it a thought, we're scared. So Jesus looks out, and he sees people who are harassed and helpless. Jesus is like the teacher who can see outside the game. We're all here worried about impressing people, buying houses and cars and our careers and all our dumb swagger, which hasn't really evolved that much beyond high school. And Jesus just sees us for what we are. He looks above the clamor and just sees that we're scared. Scared of failure, scared of amounting to nothing, scared of losing relationships, scared of old age, scared of death. And he just has compassion on us because we are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And knowing that this is what happens when we walk away from our shepherd, God. We're just sheep herding other sheep. And if you know anything about agriculture, you'll know that sheep are dumb. They are so dumb. When God made sheep, it was a, it was a practical joke. He has a sense of humor, and we know that because of sheep. In fact, the fact that they have survived so long might be evidence against natural selection in some way. You ask, you ask any farmer about sheep and their eyes start to roll back in their head. They're like, they're just so dumb. Especially if you've seen like a clip of a sheep, them spending like two hours like getting a sheep out of like a a grate or something like that, only to have them jump straight back in, right? They're just so dumb. (laughs) And, And without putting too fine a point on it, that's how Jesus sees us. But he's not laughing. He's not scolding. He just has compassion. He sees us living for stuff that doesn't matter when what we really need is Jesus and his forgiveness and his blood. And he just has compassion. He looks at these crowds and he has compassion on them. And so if you're tuning in and you're either not sure where you stand with Jesus or you are sure, you're sure that you are not a follower of Jesus, I wonder if you believe that if you really were to come back to God, if there is a God and it is the God of the Bible, that if you were to come back to him, it would be like coming back to an angry parent after having snuck out. And you're going to get a big old talking to and a dressing down. And then once you're through that, maybe a relationship will start to reform. But the scriptures would disagree with you. What's waiting for you when you meet God is compassion. That the God of the gospel, the God who would come and die for you, is a God who has compassion on you. And so with all this in mind, look at what Jesus says to his disciples. In Matthew 9, he says, Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. I wonder if that's how you imagine that phrase would end. Jesus is looking out on these crowds. He has compassion on them. And then he, he turns to his disciples and he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, most people would imagine he would say, Pray for the harvest. Pray that they would come and hear and repent. But he doesn't. He says, pray for the laborers. He says, the harvest is plentiful. Instead, he says, pray for the laborers. On this very point, one author, David Platt, says, why do you think Jesus would look at the crowds around him with all their deep needs and then turn to his disciples and tell them to pray for themselves? The answer is humbling. When Jesus looked at the harassed and helpless multitudes, apparently his concern was not that the lost would not come to the Father. Instead, he's concerned that his followers would not go to the lost. Jesus' concern is not so much for the world. He's worried about the church. He's not worried that the people won't come. He's worried that the church won't go. And so he says, pray. It's interesting, isn't it? According to this passage, the way that we will know that God is about to do a mighty work in a culture is not when people start flocking to the church, but when the church starts going out to the culture. God's vision for his church is that there'll be a people so moved and transformed by the gospel that they would have compassion like Jesus, that would overcome their fears and worries and insecurities, that they would go to a culture that desperately needs Christ. When God is about to do a mighty work, it will start within the church and not within the culture. And why would he do it this way? Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? God, you can see why God would be more glorified by his people being so transformed by the gospel and so like Jesus that they would go out to people with love and compassion and hold out the gospel and take risks for the sake of the gospel and to love other people rather than to have a church sitting there that are not at all transformed by the gospel as others just start to pour in as God does a work in spite of his church, not through his church. Now you can see that Jesus' vision for the church is that we'd be so moved by the gospel, so empowered by his Holy Spirit working within us, that we would do the impossible, which is to become more like Jesus, a work that we absolutely cannot and will not do on our own. There would be evidence that God is on the move in his church and in the world. See, the main way forward for a church in a culture that sits, uh, sorry, a church that sits on the margins of a culture, the main way that things will go forward is as the church reaches out to people with the gospel. This means having Christians who are actively engaged in God's mission and inviting people to be a part of this community and to hear the gospel and engaging people with the gospel. In, uh, in Tim Keller's book, How to Reach the West Again, he, uh, he quotes Michael Green here and he says, Michael Green estimates that 80% or more of evangelism in the early church was done not by ministers or evangelists, but by ordinary Christians explaining themselves to their oikos, that is their network of relatives and close associates. People paid attention to the gospel because someone they knew well, worked with, and perhaps loved spoke to them about it. The greatest challenge today is to stimulate a significantly sized percentage of Christians to intentionally adopt missional living in their daily lives and relationships. That is how God's mission will go forward. Is as his church 
adopt the mission of Jesus in their own lives and adopt, adopt the heart of Christ toward the majority culture and have a heart of compassion and reach out with the gospel. So why doesn't this happen? Well, I think it's the default position of the heart to forget the gospel, isn't it? We are busy and we are distracted and we rarely encounter the gospel, certainly not by accident in everyday life. And so our hearts just go out of tune. We, we expect, if you, if you have an instrument at home and you leave it for any amount of time, you would just expect that it will go out of tune. The strange thing is that we somehow expect our hearts to tune themselves, that they'd be in some way different. But the truth is we swim in a secular worldview. The default position is that you will adopt the priorities and the purposes of the dominant culture and you'll forget the gospel. That will be, the, in many ways, the default. You'll forget that Christ looked with compassion on people. You'll forget that he literally loved you to death. We'll forget the reality of the gospel, the reality of hell and the hell that Jesus faced for us. And we'll forget the compassion of Christ and how much he has done for us in our lives. Our hearts will atrophy and detune and, and fall aside from the gospel. And we'll forget how much Christ has done for us and won for us at the cross. And so we're called daily to retune our hearts to this reality. Part of reading scripture is for our own discipleship and growth in love for God and communing with Him. But the secondary application is that actually the culture needs us to read the Bible as well. That we might have a heart of compassion that would lead us to reach out with the gospel. Oftentimes we just forget it. So what do we do about this? Given these realities, what do we do? Well, from this passage it's quite clear that we pray and we go. We pray and we go. Firstly, Jesus says to pray. And we pray because this is a mighty work that ultimately we cannot do all by ourselves. We have no power to do it ourselves. We need God and we need the Holy Spirit to encounter God's grace anew in His Word and to take the next step. And so to really apply that even immediately, I think we should, we should just pray now. The, the blessing of being able to do a live feed is that when we're praying, you're praying as well. So to heed Jesus' words to pray, I'm just going to pray for us now before we forget to heed his word to do this. So let's pray. Father, our hearts are so prone to wander and to become detuned to the realities of the gospel and your grace and your mercy. God, we just pray that you would send out your church with the compassion of Christ. Just make us like Jesus, our Savior, our King, our Friend. Transform us by your Holy Spirit and bring us before you in your word. Give us the mind of Christ to see the world as Jesus does and to have a heart to go and to make disciples, to know that the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few and to begin a new work in your church in Sydney. May your people begin to go. Father, we pray that we would see this prayer answered in our midst and in our own hearts over these coming weeks. We pray this for the sake of your name. Amen. So that's the first thing we are commanded to do is to pray. But is that it? Well, it's definitely not. We are not called to just be thoughts and prayers Christians. The first thing Jesus does after he says to them, pray for the harvest, is that he sends them out. And next week, Derek, who's a member here and also the principal of SNBC, is going to be speaking through chapter 10 where Jesus commissions and sends out his disciples and tells them that the Holy Spirit will empower them for this mission. 
But the first thing Jesus does after saying we've got to pray is that he says to go. We're not just to pray about it. We're called to go, to actually do something. It reminds me of a, of a scene in a movie called Saving Private Ryan, which I don't know how old it is now, but I feel like it's classic enough that people will sort of know it. But in case you don't, the story is that there's a, 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 a sort of a, a military troop that are gathered together to go and find one particular private. Obviously, Private Ryan, that's not a spoiler. But there's, there is one scene that affects most people who've watched the movie. And it's a scene where there's a tussle between a German soldier and an American soldier, and they're fighting in hand-to-hand combat, and it's pretty brutal. And outside the room, there's one soldier who's charged with carrying the munitions, and he's got an, an enormous machine gun with him. And he's outside the room trembling and shaking because he's too afraid to go in and to help his friend. And it's the most gripping, kind of frustrating scene as you feel like, just do something, just go and do something. But he's too afraid to actually go into the room. Now, why do I tell that story? I feel like in many ways, that's almost an image of the church as a minority and how they relate to the majority culture. That we have the gospel, the gospel that changes lives, that brings people from death to life. But oftentimes, they're just too afraid to go and to tell people, to believe Jesus' words that the harvest is actually plentiful. Just go out there, guys. See, the truth is that we are to pray and to go because there's cowardice in just praying, but there's arrogance in just doing. God's people have always been called to pray and to go, to trust that God will work, but to trust also that we need Him to work as we go. We're called to pray and to go and to do something. So my prayer is that as a church that we would heed this word and that over the remainder of this year that we would go, that we would make the opportunity to engage people with the gospel in whatever way we can. And the main thing I wanted to draw your attention to at this point is a series coming up called Doubt. Now, over this time, over this pandemic, many people, I mean, even before that, many people have walked away from the church or from their faith. But particularly over this pandemic, it's potentially accelerated this dynamic as people are disconnected from faith communities, as people are wrestling with real issues about life. And so we're going to do a series on Doubt about three of the major reasons that people either have never bothered to engage Christianity or have actually walked away from what they would describe as their faith or have have deconstructed their faith. And so our our hope and prayer is that as a church, we would be mobilized to think of, to pray for all those people in your life who maybe were a part of a church community at one point, would have described themselves as Christian at one point, or have disengaged from God, or even from those friends or family who really have felt like, I just don't think Jesus or church or whatever that's about is for me, that we would be so moved by compassion that we would want to engage them, to bring them along. Now we at the moment are just juggling with what date we'll land on for this doubt series. But our hope for this week in groups is that you all would would spend some time praying that as a church that we would be moved with the compassion of Jesus to reach people for the sake of the gospel. It would be a church that uh, mobilizes, Jesus prays, workers heading out into the harvest and that we'd make every opportunity. We would be praying for this series coming up, but also making the most of the opportunities like the Thursdays where you can draw people into communion and have them see and witness this Christian community even while we're so separate and online. That we do anything we can 
to see people find peace and hope and joy and meaning in Jesus. Let's pray that God would do a mighty work in our church. Father, we praise you that you love us so much. And we pray for a deep work in our hearts that would move us to love and to serve people and to want to see them come to know you. And we pray that through this, that there might be much fruit. We pray that you'd be strengthening your church and our joy and conviction in the gospel. You give us a deep desire to see people come to know Jesus. That we would have compassion like Christ did and that we would remember the mercy poured out on us and long to see you pour out your mercy on many other souls. And Father, we know that so many people at the moment are hurting and are lost and are struggling. We pray that your church wouldn't sit idly by, but that you would move us to reach people, to love people, to serve people like Christ. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.